0: Rockland World Radio. All right, hello and welcome to another edition of New York Update. I'm Jake Jacobs. Uh, tonight we are expecting a call in. We're going to speak to another candidate for state senate in the 38th district here in Rockland County and a little piece of Westchester, Ossining area. Last week we spoke to Justin Sweet, who is the other candidate, and I discovered that there are a total of four candidates. And uh, maybe we'll have all four on eventually. This is the New York State Senate seat held currently by David Carlucci, who is currently running for Congress. And it appears he is vacating his seat that he has held since 2010. Uh, He was seated in 2011. And the seat has been controversial because David Carlucci, very quickly after being elected joined the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference, which was considered by many to be a bunch of turncoat Democrats because they caucused with the Republicans, or they made a power-sharing deal with the Republicans, and they denied the Democrats a majority. Most of the years, the Republicans would have had the majority anyway, and so they just made it harder for Democrats, I guess, to negotiate because they went across the aisle and they kind of left the Democratic caucus and joined the Republican caucus and shared the gavel. But there was at least one term in there where the Democrats would have had the majority, and the IDC actually denied them the majority. And that is to the best of my recollection. So Elijah, who's going to be calling in, Elijah Reichlin Melnick is currently aide, He's a legislative aide to State Senator James Skoufis just to the north of Rockland County in the northern Rockland area and Orange County. I know that covers uh, Goshen and Curious Joel and, and Tuxedo and areas north of here. But Elijah is running. Uh, he lives down in, in this state senate district. And he is running for state senator uh, in the seat that David Carlucci is vacating. I saw the candidates yesterday at the Martin Luther King event up in East Rampo High School and David Carlucci was definitely in campaign mode and, you know, he is ambitious. I think that's no secret that he has coveted this seat, this congressional seat, for a long time. Uh, Nita Lowy has held it for 30 years and that's most of David Carlucci's lifetime. I think David Carlucci is about 34, 35 years old. So he always felt himself the heir apparent. And in years past, it probably wasn't so controversial. You know, after Trump was elected, we saw the dynamic where there's so many people running for Congress now. And they feel it's urgent and there's an imperative and people have to get off the sidelines and AOC won, so why can't I? And so in this race, in the congressional race that David Carlucci is one candidate in, there are 12 candidates now and it's getting ridiculous. But there are 12 that have announced and I guess that makes 13 because today a member of the a school board trustee from Pleasantville, announced that he's running as well. While we're waiting for this call, we're just going to go over a couple of headlines from the last two weeks. There's always a lot going on. As I'm speaking to you, actually there are Senate impeachment hearings, impeachment trial being conducted, just to, I guess, timestamp this. The Senate has just voted to table witnesses and documents, and now they are um, voting on another measure uh, to table the subpoenaing The Office of Management and Budget, which is an amendment offered by Chuck Schumer. So basically, what's happening right now is the Republicans are blocking witnesses in the impeachment trial. Even though they took an oath to do justice fairly and impartially, they are trying to block testimony and block evidence and documents. And, you know, the Democrats already know some of the documents, what they are, what they say, because they've had testimony to that effect. And they feel it's relevant to the decision of whether or not Trump should be removed from office. I mean, let's face it, we are all just going through a sham here. The Republicans have the majority. Even if the Republicans didn't have the majority, this would be a difficult vote. Because you need two-thirds of the Senate to to vote to remove the president. And if the Senate is 100 members, two thirds is, I guess, 67 votes, and the Republicans have 53. So you would have to have somewhere between 15 and 20 Republicans vote against Trump for this to happen. And that is not likely to happen in this political landscape because senators, although they might have taken an oath to do justice impartially, they are in no rush to lose their seats. And if they vote to remove a Republican president from office, that would be it. They would get they would get primary. <clears throat> All right. And so, hello. Is this Elijah? It is. Okay. How's it going this evening?
1: It's going great, Jake. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on.
0: Right. Okay. Well, I just kind of introduced you a little bit. Let's jump right in. This is an, chiefly an education podcast, and so if we can, can you tell us the story of your personal education?
1: Sure. So I am a proud product of uh, NIAC Public Schools. Um, I grew up in Nyack. Um Actually, I started my started my education with three years at a local uh, private school, Blue Rock School, um, from uh, first through third grade, and then I've uh, been in the public school's uh, Uh, Grades 4 through 12, went on to uh, Cornell University, where I uh, studied history and government, a double major. And uh, then uh, seven or eight years after finishing college, uh, went and got a master's degree in city and regional planning from Rutgers University.
0: Right. Okay, so you're a public school product, and you presumably have opinions on... I guess the, the divide that's happening within the Democratic Party, you know, Democrat and Republican, but certainly within the Democratic Party on the presidential level uh, when it comes to public education versus the privatization movement, the ed reform movement, what they call. Mm-hmm. And the first question I always ask all the candidates is about charter schools, and I probably got your answer to this uh, in another forum, but just so we have it here. If you got elected and you went up to Albany, would you vote to maintain the cap on charter schools? That's a vote that all senators would take. It's a statewide cap, although they want more charter schools badly in New York City, and there are still charter there are still charter slots available around the state elsewhere under the cap, but, so it's really about New York City, but it would be a statewide vote. What's your position? And, and yes. feel free to expand on your uh, thoughts on charter schools.
1: Sure. No, I appreciate the question. I, yeah, I think the cap that we have, as I said the other night when we uh, spoke at Rockland Citizens Action Network, I think the cap that we have makes sense. So I would, I would support keeping that as it is. Um, I, I think that there. Um, can be a place for charter schools, but certainly not to the exclusion or to the detriment of traditional public schools um, you know there's which I think there's been a lot of concerns raised about you know if you have charters that may be sort of skimming off uh, students from public schools or only admitting uh, the best students and then leaving uh, people and leaving students that are struggling to to be handled by the traditional neighborhood schools and and that clearly is not a great solution, so I think that certainly you know, we we've gotta do this very carefully. You know, and Right. I, let's, put a, uh, let's put a let's
0: put a pin in that right there because yeah, um yeah, yeah, definitely. I would also be a lot more sympathetic to certain charter schools over others. But when I talk to Diane Ravitch and people like that, they're kind of absolutists on this because they feel just the existence of a charter school means that is a public school that is not in existence. It takes students that would, you know, almost certainly go to the nearby public school instead. And not only is it most charters are not unionized, over ninety percent nationally are not mm-hmm, unionized. Mm-hmm. But just as you're saying, they kind of compete for resources. And, you know, some people say that's by definition because this was really always a, just a scheme. Now, in New York, you know, you got to go back to the Pataki era and the charter law of 1998. When you look at the language that was passed into law, it doesn't match what we've seen right from the outset. Mm. It, to me, the most pertinent uh, part of the law. It's right up in the introduction. It's like 1B. <laughs> it says that charter schools must, I'm getting the, this is just paraphrasing, but it says charter schools must expand learning experiences for students who are at risk of academic failure. And that's in, in the very front of the definition, you know, the, what they call, I guess, the title portion or the title part of the law, right? I mean, as soon as you look up the law, you scroll down, and there it is, 1B, in the kind of, like, introduction portion, that charter schools must expand learning experiences with a special emphasis on students that are at risk of academic failure. So, mm-hmm. if you stop two people on the street, they might have a different definition of what a special emphasis means. But in terms of this discussion, like, what are what are what's an example of a charter school that you think there is space for? Like, you say,
1: yeah, I mean, I I, I guess I, I'm going to say I I don't have any specific titles or names of schools in mind because I I'm not being right. Uh, well, although I I started my career as a public school teacher, I have not. Um, been in the education field for the last few years, so I can't name a particular school. Um, I think that you know, but but I think your point is well taken. The, the role of having a, a school like a charter school, I think, is to provide, in theory, an option for students that, as you said, are at risk of academic failure if they're staying where they're at. And that I agree. If that's to be, you know, if you're going to have a charter school, I think that that really isn't appropriate. Uh, Role for it, but no, I, I don't I can't off the top of my head. Yeah, well, I would I wouldn't, I I wouldn't expect you to name a school. school. I
0: couldn't myself. Yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm re- I'm really talking about maybe like the type of the format of the school. For example, you have you do have charter schools that only mm-hmm. admit students who have low test scores, yeah, and you yeah. do you do have charter schools that have, for example, fifty uh, percent of their enrollees are in the foster system. There's right. a school right. like that. And 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 I
1: think also, I was just going to say, I think also one of the imperatives of this is that if you're going to have a charter school, it has to be open. Um, It's got to be open to anybody, and and you don't want to see, uh, you know, what you have is people getting only the best students are going there, you know, and then then other students are just getting left, uh, you know, with less support. I think that that's, as you put it, sort of the opposite of what the, of what the, thought was initially when these were
0: authorized. It's stated in the law and I guess, you know, that's what they had to put in there to get enough support to to vote on it. But of course that vote was notoriously wrapped up in a budget bill, which you know all about and in that same bill, there were raises for the State Senate and Assembly in that same year, 1998. So part of the explanation for people is that, you know, there was always some trickery involved in this. And mm-hmm. I actually had the opportunity to ask George Pataki directly. It was a radio call-in show, but I I put the question to him really succinctly. I said, if charter schools were created to serve the at risk kids how come they've never done it right from day one and mm-hmm. his answer to his credit he was honest <laughs> he said I think the system is working the way it was supposed to that we have competition in the schools now and that it pushes the schools it pushes the public schools to be better and do better because they know that a charter school is waiting right behind them to take away all their students.
1: Right, and and I and I strongly disagree with that as a premise for for having a charter school. I, I think that that's. You know, I don't believe as as somebody who can, you know, I'm a liberal and a progressive. I don't believe that you take something like public education and subject it uh, just sort of to the free market in that sense, because we public education is a social necessity. You know, this is something that's at the core of what government does and, you know, why we have a government to make sure that students are getting educated. Here's Here's what I feel on charters. I mean, we have... I was lucky. I grew up in a middle-class family. Um, I lived in a district in Nyack, which had a good public school system, and I feel like I got a really excellent education. Um, but if the district I was in did not have, you know, particularly good public school district as many schools, especially in lower-income areas, do, it's very tough. And so making sure that people have that opportunity, and I think that from the state's perspective, we need to be doing a lot more than we're doing now to fund schools, um, in, especially in lower income areas. I saw the governor's budget proposal today actually does call for devoting a significant percent of his uh, increase in education funding towards lower income, higher needs districts. And I think that that's good. Obviously, you know, we have a lot of districts and the foundation aid formula around the state isn't getting funded at the level it needs to be. But, you know, to be making sure that we're spending where we need to on some of these higher needs districts is important. But the fact is, my family, if they didn't like the education that I was getting in the public schools, had the means to be able to either send me to a private school, although they didn't, and I'm happy that they didn't, or move to a place they liked better. But there's a lot of people that don't have that. So is there a way, and this is, I think, the question, I don't know the answer, is there a way to open opportunities for people in districts who may not have the financial means to move to another district or to send their kids, you know, to a a different school without undercutting the local public schools. Because, you know, it clearly is not a good alternative if you set something up that helps a few kids at the... Expense of harming the funding and harming the prospects for the rest of the kids in the district. That, that's not a solution that I think anybody on the progressive side should support.
0: Right. So basically, you know, when we go all the way back to 98, that's basically what was sold, what the public was sold on, and what lawmakers were sold on. And then the reality has been very different. It's It's actually been very different. And you do see this competition for resources. You see competition for space. You see competition for money, you see competition for students, you see competition for staff, and then also, of course, public support. And so it's a huge rift. You know, we could probably do the whole show on charter schools, but wherever your official position lands, I think, you know, the first question would be that people would ask would be, would you vote to lift the cap? And you've said that no, that we have. No, I would not.
1: I would not. I I, I don't believe that we need to eliminate every single charter school that's out there, but I think what we have now, we certainly don't need to be. You know, moving further and to the extent that people are selling and you pointed out and Diane Ravitch has pointed out that some people may be trying to, you know, use charters or vouchers, although I think there's a huge distinction in my mind between charters and vouchers. But people might be trying to use this as a way to get at the public school system or to union bust or anything like that. I'm 110 percent opposed to that, because I think that that's, you know, that is absolutely, you know, antithetical to, you know, to good progressive government.
0: Right, we'll move away from charters, but there's the angle of uh, Wall Street investors that have tax credits based on the building and construction and renovation of charters and then the financing, which is a whole other thing. Education
1: shouldn't be for profit. Right. I mean, this is a public good and at no point in my mind should education be about people getting rich off of it or using it as a, you know, using it as a tax shelter. You know, that is the wrong way to go about public education.
0: Right now you could go buy a bond which is securitized, you know, opportunity zone investments, and that that include charters, and and they're selling this as a product on Wall Street for people to get rich. So I think we agree. You yeah, did, I, think, you I
1: think so. And and there's a lot of look, there's a lot of there's a lot of crazy stuff going on on Wall Street. I mean, so this is, uh, I mean, we that's I know this is an education show, but you know that there's. There's a lot of reform to happen with Wall Street. Right. Well, uh, we might get back to some
0: of the hedge funders and their donations if we have the time. But but you mentioned vouchers. Really quickly, I'm sure you know that we had a proposal in New York State a couple of years ago to have kind of a backdoor voucher. It was called the Education Tax Credit, and what it would have done would have been to reimburse or or to give a tax credit to wealthy donors – who are donating money to private schools, and th- there was a cap on it. It was only a certain chunk of change. Part of that was going to be regular everyday people donations, and then and then half of it was supposed to be like big corporate donations, or maybe you could clarify. But it went down. And it was something that David Carlucci, who holds the seat that you're running for, briefly supported and then changed his mind on what's your take on the vouchers and what they would look like here if they were reintroduced?
1: i I don't have a take on what it would look like if it's reintroduced, but I strongly oppose that. I, I think that anything that's directing public funds to private, often sectarian schools is a violation of church and state. And I think it's I, I completely oppose
0: it. Right, we do have that on our state constitution that we're supposed to be one of the remaining states that has a separation between uh, church and state. So great. Uh, yeah. I don't
1: think we should be sending public funds, even as you pointed out, if it's a backdoor through a tax credit to you know to private schools or religious schools.
0: Right. That would so that would be in accordance with the Blaine Amendment. Let's pivot a little to standardized tests. Now mm-hmm. I had Justin Sweet on here last week. Mm -hmm. And he has a big family. I think he said he has like eight kids or something. Okay. And when we discussed standardized testing, he noted that he had opted out uh, his kids from every test every year. And so he, you know, as a parent, was firmly opposed to standardized testing. As a teacher, I teach in the Bronx, and, you know, I teach in schools where the kids are behind grade level – All the kids that are not on the level of the test are really frustrated year after year when they put the test in front of them again, and it's above their grade level because they're behind grade level. And I administer the tests personally for every single year, and the state test in the spring, which is four days. And then we have another eight days of testing besides that on something called the local test, which are beginning of year and end of year. So, you know, as a teacher, I'm very anti-testing because... I see the effects of it in the inner city. Up here, you know, as a parent, and, you know, we speak to other parents, they're against the testing because they feel like it takes away time from better things that they could be doing. Up here, it's probably only four days, which is great, but those are four days that I'm sure schools would love to use, especially if they're at a high level. And so we spoke a little bit about this before, and maybe you disagree, but maybe you could flesh out your position.
1: Sure, I'm happy to. So I come at this from an interesting perspective. So as I mentioned, my first job out of college was teaching elementary school, and I taught elementary school in an inner-city school in New Haven, Connecticut. And New Haven and, well, Connecticut generally has the largest achievement gap between black and white students in the country. At the time I was there, it was about a four-grade level gap uh, in reading, um, and I think about a a three-and-a-half grade level gap in math. And It's, I think, a real indictment of, you know, our society and of our success in helping people realize the American dream that you could have a wealthy state. Connecticut's one of the wealthiest in the country and yet have the highest degree of educational inequity and inequality anywhere. And so how do we know that? though? How do we know that black students um, and Hispanic students in Connecticut and this is not a Connecticut problem, it's really an American problem, are not. Learning and succeeding at the rate that white students are doing, and we know that in part because there are some standardized measures that allow us to compare one district to another and see whether students <clears throat> are learning. But
0: can I stop you there? Because so,
1: well, yeah. Can I just I just want to be clear though. The reason we do this is not to play gotcha with the students. It's in my mind as a progressive to be able to say, with data to back us up, we are failing poor students. We're failing students of color. We're failing families who expect to be able to get the education that their kids deserve. And we need to be able to prove that because there's a lot of people, I think, on the right and a lot of people who are skeptical of public education and would like to be able to hand wave this away and say it's not a problem, you know, and maybe, you know, they're not learning for various reasons. But I think it's really important that we are able to point out that these inequalities exist and that we need to do something about it.
0: Right. Okay. so we definitely agree that there's massive inequality and that it's Mm -hmm. not fair. Right. And that, you know, and and how to fix that probably has nothing to do with tests. But, you know, you're saying you're saying testing is a diagnostic tool. You're saying that we need the test. To measure this, now, I
1: think it's important to have some form of, and I, I this is not to defend any particular, because I agree with you that there seems to have been this explosion that's far in excess of what's needed to do that. But to defend the concept of, yeah, I think it is helpful to be able to. Have some way to compare students who go to school in, you know, in East Ramapo with students who go to school in Nyack, with students who go to school in Yonkers or Syracuse or New York City, or you know, if we're talking, a, you know, a national test with with Alabama, because
0: you know, and that, and that's you know, that's kind of the position of Obama and Hillary and Arnie Duncan and a lot of Democrats for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Honestly, they and when this law was last voted on. In 2015, in December of 2015, they kept the standardized testing in at the federal level, which filters down to all the states. And it's an annual mandate for every child from third grade to eighth grade every year to take tests in math and english language arts and what i would argue is and this is why i do the show right so we can really like dig into these things what i would argue is that whatever we had before the testing was fine to diagnose where there is need where there needs to be fixes where there needs to be more equity where they need help where they need support where they need wraparound services now you've been in the classroom And so you know that the kids you have in front of you, you know, you really get familiar with them, and Mm -hmm. you know what they need better than anybody, Mm -hmm. and... And so, really, what is the reason that we need to be able to compare them to the kids up at the top of the hill in Connecticut? Why standardize? To me, that's a really big question. Why do we need to standardize if we all know that there's going to be a PISA exam, the international exams in fourth and eighth grade, which is going to be a measure no matter what, because that's that's country to country. And then we know there's going to be SATs for kids that end up taking the SATs, and we know there's going to be graduation rates, and we have census data on things like income, and we have attendance data so we have a lot of measures why do we need to humiliate most of the kids every year well i don't
1: i i so just to be clear i am certainly not in support of as you said you know everybody needs to be tested constantly all the time you know i you were asking me do i uh the other night do i think that we should just get rid of standardized tests entirely and the answer is no i do not do i think that there needs to be you know the amount that there are currently no i don't think that either you know i think that there's you know i'm not going to say oh i have the exact perfect number but i believe that there needs to be a middle ground between you know an excessive amount and none at all okay. and i think that and so but to, so to get back to your question though why is it helpful So as a teacher, you know, with, you know, first grade, we had uh, something called the DRA or the Directed Reading Assessment, which was administered by each teacher to their students and sort of provided some way to tell on a, you know, we did it once at the beginning of the year and once in the middle of the year and once at the end of the year. And it provided, and this is not a statewide, it was a sort of a, it wasn't like a, a fill in the bubble multiple choice test, but it was an individualized way to sort of assess with some real number, where students had gotten with their reading progress. Right, that's, so the, teacher, that's the baseline
0: that was, versus end-of-year test, which shows growth over time. Yeah, and and that, to, and that, to me, the idea that you...
1: I I guess I should be clear, because some people think, you know, standardized tests, It's the point is to just get the absolute number and then judge somebody a success or failure. That's crazy to me. The reason that you have a standardized test, I think, again, is as a diagnostic tool to be able to say, you know, are we succeeding? As a teacher, like, I would want to know, am I succeeding in teaching my kids what they need to learn? Because if I'm not you know, what am I doing wrong? Or is it something I'm not doing wrong and it's something that the district needs to support more or the community needs to support? Like th- that, to me, no matter what field you're in, I would want to know, how am I doing? And, and especially for something that's as important as education, you know, am I succeeding? And it's easy, what I saw is, is in a district where a significant number of students are struggling. You know, and coming in, when I was in fir- doing the first grade class, Kids were coming in already who were behind relative to where they should have been just after kindergarten. And uh, my roommate, who I was living at the time, Um, living with at the time was teaching uh, middle school social studies and he had kids in his seventh or eighth grade class that were coming in reading at a second and a third grade level so obviously if they're i mean if they're you know you can't blame a seventh grade social studies teacher if they don't have their kid who came in at a second grade reading level reading at grade level at the end of the year
0: of course not right
1: so that so 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 there's a lot of things that go into that but it's easy i think and and dangerous in a way. When you have a lot of students that are struggling, it's very easy for us as humans to lower our expectations of what success looks like and to sort of be able to be willing to say, well, you know, they're doing better than they were. And so that's a success. But there needs to be some way to measure You know, how much better? If they, did they improve a half a grade level? Did they improve one grade level? Did they improve two grade levels? Because otherwise I think it's very easy to just say, well, look, they've made some progress and that's good enough. And look, progress is good, but if that's happening and everybody sort of has a, a low expectation, then you can end up with situations, and you do when kids are either dropping out of school or they're finishing high school, and yet they still don't have the skills they need to succeed either in the workforce or in college. You know, and so finding to me that that's what that is the benefit of of getting information about. You know are the students in your class learning and if they're not learning not using that as a you know a a gotcha question for teachers or for parents or students but at looking at that and saying what's wrong can we do something different can we do something better because ultimately the goal should be to get every student at grade level graduating you know from high school and either going on to college if that's what they want or having the skills they need to succeed in this economy Okay, well, that's kind of where I look look at this. I I just think it's a little bit more complicated than just, you know, standardized tests good, standardized tests bad. I mean, I think.
0: Right. We're never going to eliminate testing. Let's put it that way. But, you know, I do raise questions about standardization because Mm -hmm. I, I wonder who it benefits. When you standardize the tests, then you're de facto standardizing the entire curriculum, especially in schools where you're desperately trying to catch the kid up a couple of grade levels mm-hmm. or at least just keep... no
1: if it becomes so, so jake if it becomes like a hamster wheel i think where people are just constantly chasing after the standardized test to the exclusion of real learning that's a huge problem and that, that... that doesn't benefit anybody
0: right and so i can you tell know? you that in new york city that is exactly what's going on i wish more people yes. knew about it and and the charter schools don't even hide that they are singularly focused on the standardized test scores because they want to have that comparison against the charter schools. And so they can say, you know, na na nya, nya, you know. And in New York City, the charter schools do get very high te- standardized test scores in order to compare to the public schools.
1: And I think, to, to be clear, I think we should celebrate that for the students that are getting a good education, but then we should ask, why is it that Only some students are able to get an excellent education, and we have a promise of public education that everybody should be getting an excellent education and not just a few.
0: Right, and this is why it took me a long while to get here, because I I became an activist in 2013. I couldn't believe that there would actually be people out there that would purposely harm kids in public education in order to advance privatization, which is standardized testing and charter schools but i do believe it now i do believe that they're purposely making the narrative that the public schools are failing in order so that they can not only open more charter schools and you know and and we can talk about the donors behind this but also so that they you know expand standardized testing and the reliance on standardized testing as you know it's a big business It's Mm for-profit. It's tax money that comes right out of your local school budget. And maybe we could agree that there's a a smaller level of testing, you know, that's necessary, that's basically necessary – but what we have now is not it. And that's the alarm bell that I'm trying to ring sure, no, for, for I, I elected officials, that. is that we're wasting yeah, I, I so much that time and money on overtesting these kids to the exclusion of gym, social studies, arts, sports. They no, say no, 17% that, that... of the other subjects have been lost because of the extra emphasis on math and ELA in order to get those test scores up.
1: No, I mean, that. look, the, clearly the system is not working now, and I think it's not working both with respect to the amount of testing that you've described, but it's also there are schools where the, the, just because there are billionaires who may have bad motives who are saying that schools aren't succeeding in educating some students, uh, that doesn't necessarily make it wrong. I think that there are districts in New York and throughout the country where, by any measure you might want to look at, standardized or not, kids aren't coming out of the schools with the knowledge they need in order to succeed and the skills they need. And that's not a problem, you know, that any of us should be okay with. And especially especially as progressives, I, that is a huge red flag because nobody, you know, people don't choose what, the kids don't get to choose what schools they go to. You're sort of... As a, as a child, at the mercy of your parents, of where they happen to live, and, you know, if they have means, they can move somewhere else that might have a better district, and if they don't, then you just go to whatever school is there, and, you know, New York is a, you know, we have huge funding issues here, but we're still better off than a lot of other states, you know, in the South and, and some Southwestern states that, that hardly fund education at all, right. and... You know, my my uh, my uncle taught middle school math for uh, 25 years or so. And by the time he retired, he was earning less than a, than a median teacher salary for a starting teacher in Rockland County.
0: You know, it depends what the cost of living is there, too. But yeah, but it, it's lower, but it's not.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it, it's lower, but it's it's not low to the level that that he was getting paid at and the teachers are, you know. And again, this was after, a, a, you know, a, a couple decades as a at that point, a senior Teacher, and it's still you know the salaries, you know the salaries in other in other states, and that's why you see those teacher strikes that we saw last year, you know, in West right. Virginia and Oklahoma, and sure. you know because people aren't even paid living wages in some places.
0: So this is a good transition into school funding, I guess, because it's 740 and we could go on about standardized testing as well, too. So let's not. Let's move along. So it sounds like, just to recap, that you would be comfortable with some level of reducing the standardized testing that we have in New York State.
1: Yeah, I think uh, that, that is a fair statement of what I believe. Yeah.
0: Great. Okay. So when it comes to school funding... We have this whole thing called Foundation Aid. And, you know, you probably know the update because you heard the governor's proposed budget. I know this is a game, I think, where the, where he usually lowballs and then they go into a negotiation and it, and it comes up somewhat. So if you know, what was the governor's number on Foundation Aid? I don't remember. I think
1: I, I looked at it earlier when I was when I was. Uh, hearing him do that and looking at the live stream, I think that he said he wanted an increase of about $860 million, oh. if I remember correctly. Um, but I would definitely want to check that. I okay. think he said it's a 3% increase over, over
0: last year. So where do you stand on the campaign for fiscal equity, which says that there is over $4 billion owed statewide? And of course, we do, we is. we heard yeah. that... Cuomo's uh, figure is about the same as it was last year. Really a pittance. I think. I think after they negotiated, it ends up like 1.6 or something. But mm-hmm. and this is not the past due, you know, portion. This is this year's portion Districts not aren't making getting funded. right, not making any progress towards paying down what was what was court ordered and what was legislated. So, yep. how do you feel about that? And what do you think you would go up to Albany and sit in the legislature and and fight for?
1: Well, I, I mean, I would fight for fully funding it as quickly as we can. I I think that it is the the equity reasons are clear, um, you know. And you have districts uh, in the in this Senate district, Osanig uh, in particular, has been absolutely uh, hammered by the the lack of foundation aid and the way that the formula. Disadvantages a district that's seen a lot of growth over the last twenty years, oh, uh, a lot a of growth oh. in uh, you know in ELL students and and you know higher needs populations, and the foundation aid formula hasn't kept up. And East Ramapo has been disadvantaged because of the huge amount of uh, private school students vis a vis the public schools um, and the extra cost that that imposes for transportation and things like that. But even districts that that are you know relatively better off. Pearl River, South Orangetown, Clarkstown, they're still also not getting the foundation aid that they deserve. And that, you know, kids there still may be getting a very good education, but taxpayers are getting hit with much higher local property taxes as a result because the state isn't providing the support that would allow some of that burden to be taken off local taxpayers.
0: Talking about the foundation aid, and I guess what I'm really interested in, because you know, David Carlucci always said the same. I mean, it, it took a while for him to come around. It was only after he quit the IDC. But he said he was uh, supporting full funding of foundation aid. And I'm sure the people in Austin made sure that he heard their demands. What, what would it take in the senate to get it done. I know you would be one senator going up there. I'll
1: be I'll be one senator and I will be a loud <laughs> advocate for this. I I don't want to promise that as a freshman senator, I'll single handedly be able to change the entire state budget. And I don't think that that's a dodge to say that. But I will I know what I believe and I know what I'm going to fight for, you know, and I hope that there will be other colleagues that I would have the pleasure of serving with that would be taking on this fight as well. And I know that there are, you know, there's a lot of senators, the uh, You know, there was a rally uh, that NYSAT held uh, up in Albany uh, just last week that my boss spoke at and a number of uh, Senator senators, that is, Uh and a number of other uh, members were speaking at that called for fully funding. So I think that there just needs to be a continual push. And I think that parents and I think that teachers and administrators, um, you know, everybody needs to keep the fight up. And to keep pushing for this is, look, it's we have a there's a lot of groups in New York state and everybody is fighting for funding. And there's a set amount of funding and you can get more funding if you cut funding from something else or if you raise taxes or. But people, there's a lot of groups that are fighting for money. And so I think it's incumbent on people in the education realm to to not let the pressure up and to make sure that the governor hears it and that senators hear it and the assemblymen hear it. And, you know, I think that that's what has to happen.
0: Right. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem like on the statewide level that it can happen until the Democrats maybe get a veto-proof majority? Or, I, or could it be? Uh, or, yeah, I don't. Go, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> or do you think that there is a way that legislators can maybe use the budget process to negotiate it i mean it's
1: do i mean obviously the legislature does a lot of negotiating you know you've got the governor puts his proposal out the senate's gonna pass the senate's budget the assembly will pass their budget and then everybody gets together and tries to negotiate you know really at the sort of the leadership level but yeah i mean i look i i think so if it's a four billion and i don't claim so i'm you know I'm running for this position i haven't held it yet i've been working for a state senator for one year so i don't claim to be an expert on the ins and outs of every detail of the state budget but if we want to add four billion dollars to foundation aid well
0: it, it, would, be so, like it yeah, would be like a so three-year phase it would be
1: like it's a three-year phase you just need to find we don't have as new york state the luxury that the federal government has of being able to run a deficit mm-hmm. the budget has to balance so if we are adding funding for education. We either need to take funding from something else or find a way to get more revenue.
0: And what would your proposal be? Well, I
1: think that there are some really good ideas out there for making the tax system more progressive so that folks who are doing extremely well are contributing more. And I think that that's the obvious place to look for some of this. You know, if you are earning two, five, ten million dollars a year or more, you know, billions, there's certainly plenty of multimillionaires in New York, I do think people should be paying a little bit more in state income tax than they are now. And I think that that would help provide funding and maybe take some of the burden off middle class and take some of the burden away from from the property tax, because fundamentally, the income tax is a more progressive tax than property tax.
0: Right. And the Assembly has passed measures, I think, three years running, to do just this. I know Mm -hmm. that when Cynthia Nixon was running, she published a millionaire's tax that was very, very similar to the last version that we had. The numbers might've been slightly different, but it's really only a point or so for a multimillionaire, you know, maybe they, you know, if they go from like 4% to 5%, it seemed like it wasn't going to change the lifestyles, really, of these ultra rich people. Would you want to leave it there? Or, or was there any specific no, I mean, um, I plan?
1: A, I, I think as a principle, I mean, I, I I haven't, I want to see the exact plan. But as a principle, I, I think it's completely the right way to go. You know, there's... You know, as you said, it's not going to change people's lifestyle. If you're a multimillionaire and your after tax income, goes down by two or three percent, and you still are a multimillionaire, but kids can get the education they deserve, I support that. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't.
0: Right on. Yeah, we definitely agree on funding. And, you know, there are only, I guess, certain things you can do from the legislature. And then the rest is really just advocacy and joining protests and going out with AQE and going out with and, and
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I am, I am, happy to be and ready to be as vocal as need be on this issue because it's it is foundational again both for education but i also think that if we ever want to do something about the fact that rockland and westchester have uh the highest property taxes in the state and some of the highest in the country 70 percent of the tax bill is is education and, you know, we clearly don't want to cut education, but so that means that we need to find additional state funding that hopefully then districts don't have to take as big of a bite from people at the property tax.
0: Right. There's lots of different sources besides the millionaire tax sure. that, that sure, could sure, get sure. you there. Yeah. I remember when I interviewed Jessica Ramos, she told me that we have a gambler's write-off that if we eliminate that like I had no idea look the the, the state is I mean just like the federal budget like the state tax code is it's full of loopholes
1: it's full of of weird deductions that favored interest groups have carved out over the years I can't you know go down and name everything there but there's a lot of there's a lot of areas that are worth considering does that cumulatively get to the four billion that we need I don't know I would need to look at it but it certainly gets us some of the way we need to go
0: Right. And I think David Carlucci always spoke about the, what was it, the unclaimed funds? He said just shorten the period where you're holding them. So that was... Yeah, I mean,
1: there's a lot, you know, there's a lot to do. I mean, yeah. the issue is just obviously there's there's also other worthy causes that are, I know, um, i I've filled out the uh, Working Families Party questionnaire for this campaign, and then Working Families Parties, along with many of the environmental groups, pushing for a $1 billion State investment in renewables Mm -hmm. and in in doing more to address climate change, which we absolutely have to. And, you know, so it's it's tough because these are both really important causes. You don't necessarily want to be in a position of pitting education against saving the planet. And yet, you know, if we're doing four billion for education and a billion for climate change, then we need to find even more revenue. So there's this, I think, is always the dilemma when you look at this is there's, you know, I think more critical priorities and we're and this isn't even to get into infrastructure which you know we're not spending nearly enough on you know on transit and things like that so there's more priorities than maybe there's funding for and so this is where we have to figure out a way to fund at the level that we can afford You know, find additional sources of revenue that we've talked about. And, you know, again, though, even with the additional sources of revenue, I don't know if that gets us all the way to where we would need to be to make up the funding. It might. I just would have to look at how that all plays out. But, but this is the dilemma. We have neglected, I think, as a society investment in a lot of things. I mean, both the physical infrastructure and um, you know, we've got, you know, bridges. I think the average age of bridges in the Hudson Valley is probably over 50 years now. Yeah. And not even talking, you know, big Tappan Zee Bridge type things, but just overpasses and, you know, over small rivers and streams and stuff. So we have a coming up an enormous need, you know, and, and kind of a deferred maintenance backlog almost that's going to the bill's going to come due eventually.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, the I mean, the you the, the one good thing about that spending is that it's immediate jobs and and sure, when sure. it comes when it comes to you know education it's kind of a long term investment in your you know in your citizens and in your and populace and
1: if you don't have an educated citizenry then i think the whole our whole democracy starts falling apart
0: right and then on the environmental stuff too if you're going after renewable energy let's say that actually you know starts bringing you a return pretty quickly so you know these are things that do have to get done and they need some really forward thinking people up there in Albany that are going to really, you know, attend to the needs of everyday people. I agree. We kind of agree on the funding. You know, there was also a question of the formula that's used in Foundation Aid, without getting too deep into it there was proposed changes in some sessions that never panned out i actually believe that they were proposing changing the formula and the idc was doing that because they wanted to stall actually paying it because if they did that it would actually erase everything that's claimed to be owed or that's in dispute and they could just start fresh but they did want to to my surprise they wanted to take poverty out and that seems crazy to me and and they wanted to use enrollment instead and you know as crazy as it sounds to take poverty out and I asked David Carlucci this question three times and he kept saying the same thing is that as crazy as it is the way that poverty is built into the formula it goes to buildings and it doesn't matter how many students are in the building And I said, "Are you sure about that?" And he said, "Yes." And I said, "Can that possibly be?" And he said, "Yes." So they, you know, so one of the tweaks was that they wanted to change it to enrollment instead of like how many schools are there in the district, and and a lot of these things are reasonable, but there are others that say any delay. Any kind of rejiggering of the formula would only delay making good on the the promise. So how deep do you get on on this? Because I hear there's only like three or four people that really know the real backroom mechanics of how – the state school funding is apportioned with all of the intricacies of poverty foundation aid of other streams you know you have the regular funding you have the federal streams do you have i guess a position on the formula not just how much is owed you know we we keep talking about this back owed amount of 4 billion right but the way that that's figured it's based on poverty and it's based on how many schools are in a district well, it's and- a
1: very I mean it's an extremely complicated formula. I mean right. I, I don't like you said, I, I don't know very few it's I think even many legislators that have been in Albany for years would have a great div- deal of difficulty explaining every variable and how it's weighted and all of that. I mean it's it's almost like this black box that's right sort of impenetrable so you know, what's my position on it? I mean, i, I that's not an ideal way to fund schools, clearly.
0: <laughs> so uh, you would you say know, maybe, you know, I, I, let's I, have I, some transparency to the process?
1: Well, well, yeah. I mean, again, I and I can't claim to, I couldn't recite for you, you know, all the different variables that go in and, and all of the, you know, all of that. But from what I understand, there's some obvious tweaks that, you know, there may be. I understand data still being used from the 2000 census when we're now right. you know about to take the 2020 census. I, I also I, I think that it doesn't make sense to me that we can't walk and chew gum, that you can't both look at finding a way to make a formula that's more representative and, and does a better job of equitably funding schools while also doing, you know, catching up schools that have lost out yeah, on the aid they deserve under the existing. Right, I mean, that,
0: that's why you know, I feel it was just, a trick,
1: because... Maybe there's something I'm missing, but I mean, it doesn't seem like on the face of it that those two should be mutually exclusive.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess Cuomo and his budget guy, I mean, they've said long ago that they feel the money is wiped out, you know, when spits are left. But there's others that say that, I mean, the IDC, for example, when they were making their proposals to change the formula, that that would also kind of reset, you know, that would just reboot everything. And so that would also wipe out the previously owed disputed amount. So I guess that's, we can leave that there. I mean, you've said the right thing to me is that it's a black box. And, you know, if I think if we had some transparency there, then legislators could, could better do their job. And so the last question I'd like to ask you is the other controversial issue here in Rockland and up in Orange And Brooklyn, it's about the education standards in religious schools and the investigation that has been ongoing for about three or four years where uh, schools are taking state and federal money for various funding streams, but they are not abiding by the strings that are attached with that money, which is that you have to have substantially equivalent education to the public schools. And I'm sure you're well versed in this because you've, you're a lifelong resident. But you know, what would you say, you know, as a uh, potential legislator, for this just terrible ongoing battle that we're having, and this particular issue as it, as it pertains to the standards in the school? Yeah, I
1: mean, I, I think it comes back to the same thing I said before: is I think that everybody, and you know, all students should be, you know, have the chance to, and should be getting an excellent education, and so. the extent that there are students who are not, you know, having that opportunity, that's a real problem. (laughs) And I think that, you know, if there are some private schools, private religious schools, which kids get an excellent education, they're as good as as good secular private schools. And there are other private schools where kids are coming out and they are not getting any secular education. And that that's a huge problem. And so if the state has a role to fix that, then we need to be doing that.
0: So would you be so as, as bold to offer legislation, or would you support legislation if offered uh, as a remedy, as somebody representing this this area, what would you do?
1: Well, oh. well Legislation to, to do what? Because my understanding is the law is already that the education is supposed to be substantially equivalent.
0: Right. And he, I don't
1: know if there's a new law. I don't think you'd necessarily change that, because I think that's already the law.
0: What can legislators do if the current law is not being enforced? Well, I think it is actually an enforcement question. Then. I mean, this is, you know, legislators
1: legislate. And so we have if something is against the law, then you look to law enforcement to enforce the law. Right. And that's, you know, so we have, you know, obviously, if you, uh, you know, if you drive drunk, that's against the law. And there's nothing a legislature would do to do that because they've already taken the action To make a law and to enact penalties and to do all of that, and then you rely on law enforcement to go out and actually enforce that. So, I certainly think that we should be enforcing
0: laws. Right, and you know when they're not enforced, this is a matter of the uh, New York State Education Department, and then it also falls to the local local school board. And you, as you can imagine, that might that you know it might disappear right there. The you know the problem just be ignored there. When you have like an East Ramapo situation, or even when it comes to New York City, there are political alliances, and there's, you know, all kinds of I guess you know calculations, you know, between uh, voter turnout and you know what a particular issue can net an elected official in terms of right, uh, in, in terms of you know how they want to go at this. But I'm following on this show, we're really following this issue because I'm very sympathetic to Yafed and the, the the thousands of boys that are in these yeshivas that are named in the complaint and that are not getting, you know, their education and then the enforcement isn't happening. And people are just looking in every direction for help for, for this issue because it seems to be at a stalemate. You know, it was only last week or the week before that Daily News piece came out, you know, saying that Bill de Blasio was guilty of slow-walking the investigation – and that they people have testified to that in in the investigation. It's so it's pretty pretty extreme, I guess. The divisions around this issue, and this is one of the questions we ask all candidates, and we appreciate your answers. Oh. But it's definitely a tough one because of the power of the community behind that, and they really don't want those yeshiva standards changed. I no, guess. The... Well, I
1: mean, look, kids are. You know, we, we do have a system in this country where parents are allowed to choose what's schools to send their kids to you know we have you know we have private schools to if that's what people want and for years you know people have used whether it's catholic school jewish school islamic school whatever but kids should be getting educated because you know as we talked about earlier if you don't have an educated citizenry that's a huge threat to democracy and you know and that can that can come in you know in many whether it's you know private school students not get, just getting educated or uh, public school students not getting educated at the level that they should be. So I, I do think certainly enforcing the law makes sense.
0: Right. I I don't know who could argue with with let, you know let's enforce the law. Here's a question because this is something that was proposed by the assembly. I guess they would call it maybe like the parent trigger law, and it was a Ken Zabrowski proposal to allow parents within private religious schools to trigger a complaint that goes directly to the state education department yeah interesting i'm pretty sure ellen jaffe was behind it and it was mentioned here i guess i think this was two sessions ago and i don't know if it came up at all last session but doesn't that sound like a good kind of like a no-brainer step to take yeah
1: no I, i would like to see the law that sounds very interesting
0: yeah, because you bring up the agency of the parents in this situation, and, you know, that's something that, you know, I, I speak to Yafid, and I speak to Nafili, and I ask that question, I was like, why won't these parents just get their kids out of that school and go somewhere else? And
1: Well, because I think, well, go ahead, sorry, yeah.
0: And yeah, I mean, he, he explains to me how really just insular they are, you know, that they've that they've been in this you know, he said he called it a sect, you know, a, a sect of the of the particular Hasidic group or whatever. And that they've been together for generations and that there's just no way that they're gonna leave that community, that tight knit community and all the other families and just become an outcast at that point, right?
1: Well, and it's also, look, it's also that people people make different choices about what they want. And so people who are in that community, that's the community that they are familiar with and comfortable with. And I don't feel that I'm in a position to tell them, like, your lifestyle is wrong or there's, you know, this is America. People can live their life how they want. But, you know, that said, again, you know, laws are laws. So I don't, I don't want to, I don't think that this is about the community itself because everybody's just trying to go about their lives and do what they want to do, pray the way they want to pray, live the way they want to live. And, you know, it's certainly not the role of anybody running for office or in state legislature to say, you know, that's, that's, there's something wrong with that. Again, no, you know, a law is a law. You should follow
0: the law. Right. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting problem. So I guarantee nobody else is going to go this deep <laughs> with you on education, <laughs> but I really, really want to thank you for hanging in there with me and going over these issues. I really got a good understanding. I know that you were in the Teach for America program and that, mm-hmm. and that you were a teacher for, for two years mm-hmm. and, and that you went through that. You know, I, I work with a lot of TFA alumni on a daily basis. Yeah, probably half, half of the teachers in my school. And so I know what it's like to work with uh, TFA people And I know what it's It's, like to go into the classroom and and take those experiences.
1: It's, it's, Jake, I would just say teaching is the hardest job I've ever had, (laughs) without question. I mean, there's the responsibility that, as any teacher knows, the responsibility that you have to the students that you teach to make sure that they're getting, that they're learning. You know, if you go to work at an office and you, you know, you're not doing your best or you screw up, you're the one who takes the blame. You're the one who's going to... Your job suffers, and if you're a teacher and you're not doing, you know, and you go to work and there's, you don't deliver, then it's students who suffer, and that is an incredible responsibility that people have, and I, and and I think that people may not realize that if they've never done that, but I, I found that to be a very powerful sense of responsibility that I felt, and. You know, I have just, you know, I did it for two years, but, you know, anybody that's doing it, you know, that's teaching as a career, it is a tremendously challenging but a tremendously rewarding and an essential position. And so I I think just tremendous respect for people that do this. And, you know, we could not have the society that we have, we couldn't have the country that we have if we did not have people willing to devote their lives to training the next generation.
0: Right, you are. And did I hear you say that you were at the first grade level?
1: Yeah. So the first year I taught, I actually started out teaching second grade. About six weeks into the school year, a teacher in a different school um, quit because not a teacher America teacher, just a you know teacher who had been there for seven or eight years. She quit. And they transferred me to take over that
0: class. That's what happens.
1: (laughs) That's what happens because the union rules at the time said that the least senior member, least senior teachers got transferred over to take that over. So I took over then a third grade class um, starting in October and taught third grade. And then the second year that I taught, I taught first grade in the same elementary school.
0: Well, I'm sure you will never forget the experience. I think it's great that we have teachers going up to Albany because those things stay with you how really how really important it is just like you said we do have to wrap up we are a little bit over and again Mm -hmm. thanks for calling in and thanks for hanging in there this is really in the weeds here I know but you know but these are but these are the issues that we cover you know maybe we can check back in at another point before the election
1: sure sure well the election's not coming up till June 23rd so we've got uh still have some time and Happy to talk again and continue the
0: conversation. Really appreciative, uh, Elijah. Thanks a lot. Absolutely, Jake. Have a good night. All right. You too. Bye. Thanks. All right. And so that was Elijah Reichlin-Melnick, who is a candidate for the 38th State Senate District, Rockland County and Westchester County. He's running against Justin Sweet and two other candidates. I do know that uh, David Carlucci brought one of the other candidates as his guest to the State of the State and so that was interesting and maybe we'll be able to report a bit more on that next time but for this time we're going to sign off this is Jake Jacobs for New York Update like all of our archives you can catch them online at (laughs) nyupdate.org